I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 5. We're doing okay. It's 12.09. I think that's actually more time than I had first service. Uh, so what's that? By two minutes. Whoa, come on. Wow. All right. So uh, Matthew chapter 5. Oh, I need my Bible. Oh, heavens to... Rob's trying to steal it. I see you, Rob. Okay. The Gospel of Matthew calls the reader to respond to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as a, fall, as a disciple. Jesus calls us to be his disciples by saying, follow me. Everybody say, follow me. That is a command of Jesus. He never once says, please. And there's not really a record of him saying it twice. Follow me. So either we, either we respond to his command to follow him by obeying or rebelling. And I pray that all of us will obey the call to follow Jesus. Everybody said, I will. Or amen or something that in the affirmative. Um, to be a disciple of Jesus, as we have seen in the Gospel of Matthew, means that we live for Jesus and we live like him because we've been brought into vital contact with his spirit. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 5, these are the words in red. Jesus is now talking to those disciples. He's talking to people who have said yes to him. And he's talking to them about what it looks like to be his disciple. So when we read these words in red, we need to remember that although they are certainly available to anybody who wants to listen... They are targeted, they are addressed to followers of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, and you said in the affirmative, right? Anybody here a disciple of Jesus? Then you need to say, oh, these words are for me. Now, that's going to poke us a little bit in a minute. Because, because we think, oh, he's not talking. It's, sometimes when we read Jesus say things, and we say, oh, I'm glad he said that. I know someone who needs to hear that. So he's, he's probably talking about them over there. But listen, if it's the words in red, more than likely, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to you and me. Now what he has said, what Matthew has done, is has, has he has organized Jesus' teaching, is he has set up sort of a template for us, at least for chapter 5 and maybe into 6 a little bit. But chapter 5 is sort of organized into 6 sections where that, that follow the template that we began last week. Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20. That's where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And then he said, you know, not, there's none of the laws going to disappear until it's all fulfilled. We unpacked that last week. And then chapter 20 sort of ends with this statement that says, your righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees or you won't even enter the kingdom of God. What he is saying is that he came to reveal and to call his followers into real righteousness, which is only possible now because Christ has fulfilled the expectations and the promises and the requirements of the law. So it's, it's through following Jesus that we see and then walk into or learn to live in real righteousness. So then in Matthew 5, what follows is we're going to see about six examples. Please say examples. This is really important because he's not giving us a new law or a new code or a new list of things to do. He's giving us six examples of here's the law, 
Here's how it is actually fulfilled in Christ. This is what it really means. This is real righteousness. And what we'll see is, hey, wait a minute. Uh, We, his audience and us, we've been measuring righteousness wrong. We'll see that his expectations are far higher than we thought. We'll see the true intent of the law. We'll see the reality of righteousness and the reality of sin and therefore our need for a savior. So here's what he does. He says, this is, I've come to fulfill the law. Now he's going to give examples of that. And and let's look at the first example that he gives us in uh, uh, verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 5. We'll just do two verses today. Here's what Jesus said. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Verse 22. But I say to you, remember that's the equivalent of thus saith the Lord, but I say to you that everyone who is, <laughs> you know what? I don't care how many times you read the Bible. Every time you read it, if you'll slow down, it'll, it'll just give you a happy sock in the gut. Look, <laughs> I say to you that everyone, someone say everyone. Oh boy. See, that gets, that means, that, who isn't, does anyone need the Greek for everyone? <laughs> that means everybody, okay? Everyone or anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, this, and Jesus is saying it's the same idea of the court. There were courts set up in, uh, right away in Deuteronomy and Exodus, there were courts, little councils that were set up in every city. And those councils were set up so that uh, when you, you, you acted as an infraction against the law, there wasn't, it wasn't the Wild West where you just could just willy-nilly get revenge. You were brought, there was a system of justice. And he's saying, your actions will be held accountable to God's justice. So anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Good morning. (laughs) Morning. (laughs) Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, thank you for speaking to us by your Holy Spirit and giving us understanding and leading us into righteousness. Righteousness is the, the goal for the followers of Jesus. We, we, we read that even in our time of communion where we saw that Peter wrote that he, that he himself bore our sins on his, in his body on the tree that we might die, die to sin and live for, live for, okay, we're, I'm not sure we're all pulling on the rope very well together. We might die to sin and live for, there we go, there we go. See, remember, the, the more robust you are, the faster I can go. Okay, yeah. So the first thing Jesus says in this passage is about righteousness is righteousness is more than not murdering. It's more than not murdering. Jesus said, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever gets murder will be liable to the court. He's referencing the sixth commandment. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13, Deuteronomy 5 17, you shall not murder. 
Leviticus 24, 17 repeats that in that, right, they're at Sinai, and they get this instruction. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. It's about, this is a judicial response, a justice response to an infraction. But the problem seems to be, although rabbis taught often and they expanded and they pulled on this, the problem seems to be that there's a, there, at least a strong possibility that this commandment wasn't understood. Or at, at least we have to recognize that Jesus is saying, I'm, the, I'm going to bring fulfillment or the ultimate expression of this commandment to light. And that is this. They might have assumed that thou, you know, you know the, I'm going to pardon my King James here, thou shalt not kill, just meant don't kill anybody. But what we read from what Jesus says, and we've already read it out loud, is that the fulfillment of this command, that righteousness actually means that human life is valuable. And that we must not harm one another. Prohibiting murder is supposed to include, it's supposed to to teach that we are to prohibit or avoid or stay away from anything that leads up to murder. A lot of times in the scriptures, Jesus is teaching, he gives us the extreme. And the idea is if the extreme is off limits or the extreme is prohibited, that includes everything going up to it. So Jesus tells us that we, we don't just don't kill people. We also reject murderous attitudes and speech. And we will be held accountable for the contempt we harbor and that we show one another. Because what Jesus says next is righteousness does not harbor contempt. Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now, some versions, maybe some of you have a King James or another version that might say, everyone who is angry without cause. And everybody, everybody wants to reach for that one and say, whoosh, good. Now I can get me a good, as long as I got me a good reason, I can be as mad as I want. Hallelujah. <laughs> but that, that, is not, that is not the, uh, the escape clause. That is, <laughs> that is not the loophole. If your Bible says without cause, go ahead and leave it in there. I think it was supplied later by translators eventually, but don't worry about it. Leave it in there because it's actually, we'll, we'll just make it work for us. When it says without cause, that's not your loophole to get angry. That means, hey, wait a minute. If you're angry, that's your opportunity to stop and say, do I have a reason, a cause for this anger? Wait for it. That I can justify before God. Not that I can justify on, you know, uh, social media or with my bros or with my girlfriend or whatever. Not that I, I can get my bestie to say, oh, yeah, you totally are. I should be mad. No. Can I, ju- can, do I, ha- can I, can I bring this inner offense before God and have him say, oh, yeah. Anger is for evil. What's, he, what's the purpose of anger? The anger is for injustice. Not irritants or offense. 
injustice. Anger is for evil. Anger is for that, those things which are contrary to the will of God, contrary to the plan of God, that are hurtful, that, that, are, that, are, that, that everything that is contrary to God's mercy and his love and his righteousness, the things that come from hell to affect and to infect and to oppress and to hurt others. You know, if you come at my son, I'm going to be angry and it's for a good reason. You come at my family, I'm going to feel angry. Angry, okay? But anger is not for your indulgence. Let's come back to the text here. Jesus actually says here that murder begins with anger. Anger involves a desire to lash out, to attack, or to harm someone. It is a feeling or an attitude of contempt. That is why it hurts or offends you when you feel anger from someone else. When you feel someone is angry, when you feel that, there is, there is almost an instinctive response to put up your dukes or to get, or to, you know, you have the hair on the back of your neck stand up or, or whatever. There's some emotional, psychological response when you feel anger, that fight or flight thing comes up because anger is an intent to harm. And that's why anger hurts even if you don't touch anybody. Anger Injures. The grammar here actually tells us that Jesus is describing a particular kind of anger. There's a couple of Greek words for anger, and the one here is pretty intense. The meaning of this word seems to connote, with the context, a deep-rooted, long-lived anger. It is a, maybe this sounds. It is an anger that is nursed and rehearsed. It is, an, it is an anger that is kept warm via your murmuring and accusation. Every time that anger gets to settle down a little bit, you just murmur a little bit and you stir the pot. Harbors contempt. And it's in the present tense indicates that this is an ongoing festering anger. That's why the Amplified translates it as everyone who continues to be angry. And that's probably the, a really good, accurate translation. Anyone who continues to be angry and harbor malice. It's also in the passive voice. Ooh, it just gets better. It's also in the passive voice. So this means this is you being aroused to anger or being provoked. This is somebody making you mad. They made me mad. That person, that thing, that circumstance made me mad. No, they didn't. No one, you, know, you know that no one can make you mad. You get to choose that. But this is you being provoked. This is you offended. This is you sinning. It's not righteous. It's murderous. And you will be held accountable. Good morning. <laughs> now let's just consider. There's some, just reflect. I have some verses there for you, but let's just con- let, read them quickly. In general, the New Testament talks about anger, and it makes sense according to what Jesus is saying. Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. You know, use anger correctly. In other words, and then he says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give the devil a foothold. Your anger will give the devil a foothold in your life. 
Then Paul says, let all bitterness and all wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Colossians 3.8, but now you also put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. James 1.19 and 20, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Here's a great verse for us this morning. We're talking about righteousness, and here's what James says. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Your anger cannot get you to do anything righteous. Anything done in anger can be done better without it. Your anger will not get you to righteousness. If you're going to follow Jesus, you cannot take your anger with you. Furthermore, righteous, it's not just that righteousness doesn't just harbor contempt. Jesus takes it further, which is just like him to do. He is going to, keep, he is going to push the boundaries for us in these next six things. Uh, he says, uh, Jesus, and everyone or whoever says to his brother, time out, brother in this context talks about, is talking about Adelphi, it's siblings. He's talking to you and me, the church. So this is about harboring anger toward, now, of course, it involves those outside of the church, but he's talking to his disciples about being disciples. Okay? So he's saying, you don't harbor, you cannot, we don't get to harbor anger toward each other. So forgive me, Rob. Okay? And, and we don't show contempt toward our brothers. Here he says, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall, nothing is in the Greek there, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Now, when he says Supreme Court, his audience, they, that's what he, that's, that should be like Sanhedrin. So like, oh, I get it. So he already equated murder and anger as having to appear before the same court. But now he says, if you, if you show that contempt, not only you're going to go to the Supreme Court. Is he saying that showing contempt is worse? Maybe. But his point is, you have thought that just saying something is no big deal. But you need to understand that when you speak with contempt, it's a very big deal. Whoa, he says. Now, of course, he, he references the Sanhedrin, but the, we've already read the text, so we know that the, the thrust of it has, is, has more to do with standing before God in, in, in divine or heavenly judgment. So there's, he's, he's using the Sanhedrin is illustratively of, I'm going to stand before God for what, I'm, for what I just said. Speaking like this is a big deal. We mean you good for nothing. What's what's that mean? Well, the term good for nothing is a is an anglicization. It's an English translation of of a phrase that meant um, empty head. You empty head. But they're actually here's you empty head. Uh, uh, but here's the deal. It's actually more difficult than that to translate because it doesn't actually mean empty head. The, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term that the Jewish people had uh, learned or borrowed from their, their Aramaic speaking history and neighbors. In Aramaic, the word is racha. And if you say racha, and you say it the right way, no joke, this is not a joke, it sounds like you're getting ready to spit. And that's the point. This racha is the same, it sounds like, it is a verbal spit. 
It is, it is, the, it is the expression of verbal contempt. <laughs> he says, if you spew contempt on your brothers with your words, you are liable to God. Why do people do that? Quick time out, little sidebar here. Why do we do that? Why do people talk like that? People speak down to or with contempt toward others because oftentimes it's how they make sure to keep people in their place below themselves. We speak with contempt in order to sting or to poke, to get even. Because someone's made us mad. Someone has in, cut us off or frustrated us. They've come in, they've frustrated our, our goals or objectives. So we need to make sure that we get even with them by what we say. Oftentimes, I don't want to pick on everybody. I don't want to be, but you know, I've been in church for a smidge. For a minute. <laughs> and uh, oftentimes, Fortunately, there are people that have been in the church that are following Jesus for a long time that are just so full of Jesus, so precious, that the harder they get whacked, the more something sweet comes out. And that's how I want to live. I want to be a pinata. I want to be a pinata. Harder, the, the harder you swing at me, the more likely something sweet's going to come out. Okay? That's my whole life. I want to be a pinata. But, I, but honestly, also, there are some people that have been around for a smidge that seem to feel like somehow they've entered into a calling to make sure to keep other people in their place. Like they're going to look for an opportunity for a jab, a poke, a, a condescending statement. When we speak with contempt toward others, it debases them. It devalues them. So my words at someone... Labels them, I've cha- I, with my mouth, I have changed your price tag. With my, you, you had a value, maybe the, whatever the Lord says or whatever you believe the Lord says, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come alongside in my own arrogance and with my words, I'm going to slash that, mark you down for clearance. You are less valuable than you were because I've said something. And the problem is, the problem is that sticks We'd love to be able to say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The problem is sticks and stones are, you can recover from. But if you, when you use your words to devalue others, it's, it can stick on them and it can create, oh my goodness, if you do it in such a way, it'll create an environment where you make that person fair game to be treated that way. You publicly shame someone and you make them less than and then you make it fair game for them to be treated with less value. It is a horrible slope. According to Jesus, our words are measured by their impact, not just their intent. I know people will say, well, you've heard it so many times. Well, I didn't mean that. And we, we, we judge ourselves by our intentions because we see ourselves with perfect halos. Well, I would never say, I didn't mean that. Well, you very well may have, and only the Lord knows your intentions, but we're also held accountable for the impact of our words. Matthew twelve thirty six. Jesus says, but I tell you that 
every careless word people speak, they will give an accounting for it at the day of judgment. And again, the very same passages that, and the context of passages that dealt with anger deal concurrently with what comes out of our mouth. There's a relationship. 420, Ephesians 4.29, let no, which is right in the middle of get rid of anger and malice. 4.29, let no unwholesome speech proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the edification according to those who, according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. That really is the New Testament template for what you're able to say. Wow. What? Well, that's unrealistic. It's real righteousness. And we've already read Colossians 3.8 about anger, but listen to how Paul weaves these two things together. But now you also put aside anger, wrath, malice, listen, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Jesus continues, and he's not giving a gold and silver and bronze medal here to these things. But he's taking it even further. He's stretching it out. You say, he's whoever says rakah, you know, that verbal spit. But then he says, and then whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That's right, friends. The first time Jesus mentions hell, he is warning us about the words we use to speak to one another. What's he talking about? And again, he's talking about the whole thing. Anger and abusive speech, murderous thoughts and attitudes are like murder with your mouth. Murder by mouth. Okay? But now he has given us this third example. This word fool is like rakah, but it's different. It, it, it has to do, it has a more of a, of a moral implication. If rakah is you empty head, you good for nothing. This is, not only are you good for nothing, you're a bad something. That's the difference. Good for nothing, bad something. That's what this one says. This one suggests an immoral or sinful or untrustworthy stuff. You know, as when you, when you speak to or about people in ways that insinuate there's something, uh, there's something wrong with that person. You suggest, hey, I'm just, hey, I don't know, but just suggesting there may be some nefarious thing going on there. It's a phrase that casts aspersions on someone's character that robs them of reputation. It tarnishes their name. It assumes, it accuses, it insinuates, it scandalizes, it shames them. And Jesus said that showing this kind of contempt, this sort of murder with our mouth, makes us liable or guilty enough for hell itself. Matthew 12, 37 says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now when Jesus says uh, the, the, the fire of hell, whoo, or hell's fire, the, he, the, the, your Bible might say the Gehenna of fire. First of all, fire has already been used in the book of Matthew to speak of judgment and unquenchable fire. We've already seen that. But now Jesus modifies that and he, he will continue throughout Matthew. Get ready. It's not pretty. But he'll continue to talk about this place and warn us to avoid it. Who's he talking to? Here, 
here Jesus uses a phrase that is part of Israel's history. The Pharisees use this phrase. The prophets use this use images from this place uh, throughout uh, Isaiah and others and Daniel and Jeremiah. And then the Pharisees picked it up and it became part of their doctrine and teaching as well. And Jesus uses this example. He says Gehana. That is a Greek phrase for a, a Hebrew place called the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a place way back in the, the post-David monarchy and divided Israel where an evil king, an unrighteous king, used this valley as the place where children were sacrificed to Malach. That where children were caused to pass through the flame. That's right. The first time that we read hell referred to in the New Testament... It uses a place on planet earth where parents used to sacrifice their babies in order or in hopes of improving their lives. After that king was dethroned, righteous kings followed him and they and in, and, in, and in horror of that place, they turned that valley of Himon, uh, Hinnom to, um, into a, a refuse, a, a garbage dump. And they would burn refuse there. They would keep piling the refuse and keep burning it. And it was a big pile. The idea is that it became a, a pile of refuse that was constantly smoldering. That was unquenchable fire. Fire was constantly smoldering, and because of the refuse, get ready for gross, because of that, that refuse provided fodder for worms, that really robust, hard-to-kill worms that feasted on that fodder. So it was a place of burning sulfur, fire, and worms. We'll hear more of that later. But Jesus refers, you say, that's the most horrible thing I can think of. The prophets and others used the imagery of that real place to describe hell, judgment. And Jesus says that showing this kind of contempt makes us guilty enough for that place. We are in danger of hell itself. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to reveal real righteousness. And by default... He shows us not only the expectations of real righteousness, but he shows us that the consequences of sin are more than we have measured. So then how can we be righteous? How can we, how can we live righteously? How can we be saved? The apostles, they heard Jesus teaching and they, would, they said to him, Lord, if you say that, who then can be saved? And here's the good news. Jesus said, well, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Here's the good news. Following Jesus leads to real righteousness. Because Jesus saves us from sin's power and penalty. He saves us. He's, the answer to the, the sin is real. The consequences of it are very real. What's our only hope? Jesus saves us. You can't bargain your way out. You can't fight your way out. You got to be saved out. And Jesus saves us. 
When we repent and place our faith in Jesus, we are saved from sin's power and penalty. And following then, following him then leads to or develops real righteousness in our lives. We follow him again because we, and by being brought into vital contact with his spirit so that we can obey him and imitate him. So that we as followers of Jesus can live for Jesus and live like him. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's righteousness. Would you bow your heads, please, as we close this morning? Have you decided to follow Jesus? The call of Christ goes out to everyone who will hear his voice. If you hear this morning... Lord Jesus, through the scriptures and through the witness of the Holy Spirit, speaks to us. So with our heads bowed across this room, I'd like to ask that very straightforward question. 